like a fish sometimes. The last thing you can tell a fish about is water because they live in it. And the last thing you can tell people in society about is the system they live in because they live in it. Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Lawyers with the Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons and the Abolitionist Law Center have filed an unprecedented environmental lawsuit against the U.S. Bureau of Prisons on behalf of federal prisoners from around the country. Plaintiffs in the case say they weren't properly informed about the $444 million plan to construct a new federal prison on top of a former coal mine next to an active mine and a coal sludge pond. The prison could house prisoners in the near future. The lawsuit comes after more than three years of a controversial Environmental Impact Statement, or EIS, process. The lawsuit states that federal prisoners should have been considered as parties with legally required access to EIS documents, as required by the National Environmental Policy Act. The EIS process outlines a wide range of social and environmental impacts, including potential health risks and alternatives to construction, which prisoners are uniquely situated to provide insight on. Prisoners are particularly vulnerable to the results stemming from the final EIS approval earlier this year. The prisoners are asking the courts to halt progress on the plan until they have received access to the documents for review and comment. Mergensana Amar, an asylum seeker from Russia, died at St. Joseph Medical Center. Amar was taken to the hospital November 15th after being found unconscious in his cell at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, according to ICE officials. Amar had been in ICE custody at Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma for over a year. He was scheduled for deportation this month, according to ICE. Amar had joined the national prison strike as a hunger striker on August 23rd. After many other prisoners stopped their strikes, he continued on for two more months. Medical examiners deemed his death a suicide, but Northwest Detention Center resistance has demanded an investigation by the state into Amar's death. Mr. Mergensana's horrifying death is proof the ICE and GEO group will not keep people safe, according to the group. GEO is a private company under contract with ICE that is responsible for the detention of 1,575 people awaiting immigration proceedings at the Northwest Detention Center where Amar had been held. A letter signed by four prominent members of Congress addressed to the director of ICE demands a thorough investigation into Amar's treatment, events leading up to his death, and a reevaluation of the medical examiner's report. Included in the demands are any reports filed that show that he was force-fed, put in solitary confinement, or given a mental health evaluation. Roxana Hernandez Rodriguez, age 33, an asylum seeker from Honduras, died from physical abuse, dehydration, and untreated complications from HIV, a second independent autopsy has just revealed. Roxana died in May, but the Transgender Law Center filed a Notice of Wrongful Death claim on her behalf and against ICE, which revealed these new findings. The medical examiner's report says, quote, According to the observations of other detainees who were with Ms. Hernandez-Rodriguez, the diarrhea and vomiting episodes persisted over multiple days with no medical evaluation or treatment until she was gravely ill, unquote. She was being held at the Cibola County Correctional Center, another geo-group detention center in New Mexico. 
Cibola County Correctional Center was turned into a detention center in 2016 when it lost the contract to run as a prison because of rampant human rights violations. It is now the only detention center with a wing for transgender women. Roxana arrived there a few months prior with a migrant caravan organized by Pueblos Sin Fronteras. She presented herself at the San Isidro point of entry in Tijuana before being taken into custody. The family released a statement through the Transgender Law Center. Quote, Roxana Hernandez was our sister and it is an injustice to have her die the way she did. For us, her closest family, it's been extremely painful to deal with. She left with dreams of opening a beauty salon and hopes of helping us out. She fled Honduras because here, transgender people are discriminated against. She left with hopes of living a better life." Unquote. This week, we're continuing our talk with Leon Benson, who speaks to us from inside the Pendleton Correctional Facility here in Indiana. He's been inside since 1998 for a murder conviction, and he's been trying to clear his name and win his freedom ever since. Benson was incarcerated at 23 years old and talks about becoming conscious while on the inside and shares with us the details about the night of the murder and his ongoing struggles to get post-conviction relief. In addition to talking about being stonewalled by the Indiana court system, Benson talks about the prison industrial complex and its relationship to corporations such as Aramark, Global Telling, and more. He also talks about the new Jim Crow and how race influences mass incarceration. Benson maintains his innocence and continues to fight the system. I'm very disappointed, very disappointed in Indiana courts and how they basically stonewall my case from the lower courts in Marion County to the Indiana Court of Appeals and obviously in the Indiana Supreme Court. We talked about a witness that came forward to police early on. Well, this witness came and testified in 2015 at a PC evidentiary hearing. And he pointed, he pointed out, man, I wasn't a person that he seen commit the crime. And he knew the person. I fell to the floor. I couldn't believe it. Honestly, I'm like, man, I feel vindicated. I feel vindicated now just for having that experience, for my family to see it. Because at some point you feel like people just don't believe you or they just so skeptical or they just miserable. And they just don't believe that you're innocent. They think, hey, you know, you you, you bull crapping. But when they seen it and heard it with their own eyes and, and with their own ears, it was it was a real thing. It was very vindicated. Not only that, but we had scientific evidence from a Jeffrey Loftus. Jeffrey Loftus is a experimental psychologist from Washington University. He had some new science that came out in 2004. It's vision and distance analysis, where he discovered that a person with 20-20 vision cannot recognize a face from 50 yards away in broad daylight. And up under poor lighting conditions, the loss of visual information drops time zero. So from 50 yards and poor lighting conditions, let's say, like at sunset or dusk, looking at a person from 50 yards away will be the equivalent of looking at them from 150 yards away in broad daylight. It's humanly impossible. Well, the state's witness in my case, it was at night under very poor lighting conditions, witnessed this crime from 47 yards away at night, times that by three, and she didn't have 20-20 vision. And her description was awful. Dark-skinned, 5'8", 
person. She way off. I'm, I'm, I'm almost Puerto Rican. People be mistaking me for being Puerto Rican. I'm, I'm so light, you know. So we had all this evidence, and they just stone water. So now I'm in preparations to file a habeas corpus up under actual innocence. And with that, the reason I have to file it under actual innocence is because I'm procedurally defaulted because I had to withdraw my case while I was in the shoe, while I was in the shoe in 2009 because the judge was withholding my witnesses. She was kept blocking me from, from getting witnesses to come and testify and the lawyer jumped on my case without my permission. And it was so much chaos, I just withdrew and I proceeded to file a civil suit for monies that were stolen from me by this lawyer and I, I never got no relief on it. I was I was denied at every step of the way on that. And I really felt like I was taken advantage of while I was in the shoe. And, you know, just not having access to the law library the way I needed it, all those things. So in order for me to overcome that procedural default, let me tell you what a procedural default is. It's called a Anti-Terrorism Death Penalty Act which was enacted in 1996 by, by the Clinton administration. The same thing about the prison litigation reform of 1996. The Clinton administration done that too. And what happens is a prisoner only has within a year to file their appeal. And not a year after everything is done, your first appeal will be after trial will be your direct appeal. And let's say the direct appeal get denied. After that, you have a countdown going. Let's say if you file your post-conviction release three months after your direct appeal was denied, that means three months of your time is spent. Then after your PC, if you get denied, and it takes you 30 days to file it to the Indiana Court of Appeals, that's another month off. So that means you have eight months left, and so on and so on. Because I left my, my case out from 2009 to... 2013, roughly, I defaulted on that. So my only way to overcome that is actual innocence. And I got a very powerful case with the two factors I explained to you, not to mention all the other errors committed by my trial attorney. But those two factors, that exculpatory witness, the Corey Farden, who identified uh, the shooter three days after the crime, and that newly discovered evidence of the vision and distance analysis, I will be using those for basis for my actual innocence. Well, it's a situation that happened in the trial where how I was ran up in the case, it was a, it was a drug user by the name of uh, Donald Brooks. Never met the man. Just, he probably seen me in the area, you know, I've been candid about what I was doing in the area. I knew a lot of people in the area. He probably knew of me because of what I was doing, my illicit activities. But uh, he went to police and, and got me arrested. You know, he was like an informant for the police, for the detective in this case. So like six days after the crime, it was him who sick the police on me. He said, man, that guy over there, he the one committed the crime. I think he committed the crime, you know. And the police arrest me and hence uh, questioned me about a murder. I denied it. 
And then they had the, the state's eyewitness, which is not him, which is a woman. She's a, a white woman. So what happened, what happened, she possibly identified me out of a photo right. The next day, he gave a statement trying to implement me in the crime, saying I was on the corner with several people. Uh, he claimed that I robbed him at gunpoint. He never said what anybody had on. He made uh, hearsay accusations that, hey, he was down on the corner uh, doing what he do, insinuating drug deals, things like that, that wasn't relevant, uh, that wasn't charged things like that and he said well I didn't see the crime but I just think he did it put two and two together I just seen him before the crime happened and I looked out the window and I seen him walking down the street which is all bold-faced absolute lies so when we get to trial in the first trial we had a thing where Brooks was reluctant to testify he was like no nah, I don't want to testify you know I had no encounter with him in the county jail or anything. So the prosecution asked the court could they read a redact a redacted part of his statement because they couldn't read the whole thing because it was inadmissible. In the first trial we had a bench conference where the judge decided that they could only redact parts of his statement and exclude everything else to refresh his memory. And that's what they did. Did you see the defendant? Uh, I think so. No, I don't know. This is how he was uh, answering the questions. And we ended up having a hung jury. The second trial, for some reason, my lawyer just turned into a sloth. And I would even go as far as to say that that was the Pandora box mistake of my lawyer by allowing this statement to get into evidence after having a conference that it was inadmissible. Then the prosecutor went a step further with publishing the statement before the juries verbally. So he read it verbatim while Donald Brooks was dismissed as a witness after being treated as a hostile witness. So they gave the impression like he didn't want to tell the truth because he was scared so we would tell the truth for him and they said all that bull crap, which is a very, very big issue that really undermined my whole trial. There's no excuse for my trial lawyer not to object to that, especially when he knew the prejudice of such a statement from the first trial. So, yeah, that's definitely a big issue, too. It's, there's several more issues in there, but, yeah, all of them are worthy of a new trial. First, you got to recognize something. Now, because you recognize it, that still don't make you conscious. That makes you aware. Let me make a distinction. It's a difference. When you look in the dictionary, when you read consciousness, it'll say someone who's aware. But how I mean it and many of the rads mean it, to be conscious means to act on what you're aware of. So I became aware that it was a matter door in the room, like, oh man, okay, he's there, it's there, so I wasn't pointing at it. I'm like, yeah, it's there, it's there, but I didn't know how to combat it. I didn't understand the system fully. At the time when I was 23 years old, 
when I got convicted in 1999, I did not understand the system and how it works. I didn't understand the three branches of government, let alone the de facto branch, which would be corporations. I didn't understand that. So it was a process for me to start to understand. So my early consciousness was identifying. It was an awareness. So I, I seen the matador, so I had to learn what the matador really was in this instance, which was a system, a system of oppression, of discrimination, stemming from a system of capitalism. If we look at capitalism as the game of monopoly, we can say, and I think I said this before, that it's not the people. The people ain't a system. The people abide by a system. They become players in a system. The system becomes a tacit thing. So because of capitalism, it's doctorate, how it changed over the years from what Adam Smith once thought it was going to be. It changed in the advent of the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century to the 20th century. And obviously, from the 20th century to the 21st century and today that we live in an information age. And things are ruled by advertisements. It's a lot of, lot of oligopolies, which means corporations got control over markets and they push out the smaller firms or the moms and pops. They can't survive fighting firms like Walmart or things like that. So once I start to understand that and understand how I was a pawn in this particular game unconsciously, that's when I start becoming conscious and start doing things to combat that, start being more instructive and more uh, uh, clear with my observation about the system and what we can do. So it, it started with the microcosm of uh, prison, you know, look at your environment. I looked at my environment and I worked from within out instead of out within because I had to start with myself the uh, the sale, all these other things, and really make it make sense through prison policy. How this works? How did this apply to the law? This is the this is the mirror of the law of the judicial system, you know. And and I started putting these things together. But I would say, you know, continue study and application. You know, find things that are applicable to what you're doing that are practical and make it make sense. There's a lot of philosophical stuff out there. And a lot of times, people in the system, including myself, as the example, we suffer from what you call sunk cost fallacy. Sunk cost fallacy means that a lot of people come into a moment of truth and see the matador, so to speak, this metaphor I'm using for uh, a corrupt system and how it really works. They see it but they don't do nothing because they are so invested in it. It's hard to do something. It's just like when the banks mess up, it's bailouts. You see, that's a sunk cost fallacy. Oh, well, yeah, let's go ahead and bail them out then. Let's reset it. But it's, it's, it's something inherently wrong with it. If it done that, you know, we need to stop that. We need to do a whole revamp of the system. Now, that's my wish. And that might be a little lofty of my thinking, but in all practicality, this is something that'll take time. It'll take decades, 
to redo because people are benefiting from this system. And when you look at these systems, these interrelated systems of that system, like uh, the uh, three branches of government, you see people who benefit from this system. And it's hard to make people change something that they benefit from. They so need deep in investments. A good example of that would be the oil company. We know the oil company know what they doing is messed up with, with, with drilling for oil. It's polluting the environment, all these things. However, the government can't pull out because of what they, I mean, not the government, them particular corporations can't pull out for what they invested in, even though it's wrong. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies, the, the pharmaceutical companies, as well as the cigarette industry, as well as the prison industrial complex. And all the things that's made to exploit society, particularly people of color and poor people, you know. So once I start seeing them things, I'm like, man, this is like really the matrix. How do I make my way through this? And just like metaphorically in the movie The Matrix, when you look at Neil, Morpheus said, Neil, you are the one. And on that first, the first Matrix movie where Neil was learning his strengths, See, he was becoming practical because he needed to maneuver through the system. It's like a fish sometimes. The last thing you can tell a fish about is water because they live in it. And the last thing you can tell people in society about is the system they live in because they live in it. So those are some perspectives of how I became conscious. You know, whether it was me through the law, working through the law, being pro se, whether it was me campaigning for my case in real time, whether it was reaching out to people in the world the best way I could, seeing some of the contradictions, a lot of the contradictions, looking in the mirror, reevaluating, reassessing. And it, it took a long time to, to get to where I'm at now. And, and I'm steady going. It, it, it never stops. Well, when you get a system, when you get a system of exploitation, we got to look at it as corporations. So the prison industrial complex is a complex system in of itself, a complex system that creates other systems. Let's, let's look at a microcosm of its 50 states. Let's look at Indiana. Okay, it's 20 prisons in Indiana. Okay, first and foremost, on the on the incentive of making money from a corporate sense, you would get big lobbyists or corporations corporations to lobby the legislation. The legis the legislation will pass certain laws, and you know what? It's a mandatory minimum. We need to get people off the streets. So you have what you would call moral panics in criminology. So moral panics will be put out there. Oh, man, we know it's, it's these killer drug dealers out here, the super predators. We got to isolate this community. The world going to change. They're going to come get you. And all of a sudden, you get stereotypes. You get myths of crime and need for punishment. Hence, you have laws passed. So when the laws pass, you get the judicial system that back these laws up. So when you look at the judicial system with police, agencies, the prosecution, all the way up to the judge, they are reinforcing these laws. And when they enforce these laws, guess what? 
there needs to be a place to put people. Hence comes prisons. So when you create prisons and of themselves, they make job opportunities for particular regions. Let's say, for instance, if you didn't know, most prisons in the Midwest are built in sundown communities. Sundown communities are communities that basically, back in the day, back in the 60s, and even as late as the 70s said, if you black or if you not white, don't be in this town after sundown. Ironically, most of the prisons in the Midwest, particularly in Indiana, are built in those sundown regions. And that employment is going to that particular group of people in the area. So now you got an economy, an economy for the area. The prison is reaping benefits from the labor of the prisons to other corporations. The state is drawing federal funding for the prison. Other corporations jump in, paying products. They sell commissary. As we mentioned before, Global Tail Link, they got phone contracts. They got JPay. They got these tablets. Then you get the medical industry that comes in and contract their goods and services out to the prison. And you got Airmark. And you get all these entities involved that, that's wrapped up in this one thing that makes up the prison industrial complex. Now, coming from our micro our micro observation at that, and you, if you times that by 20, which is 20 prisons in Indiana, you can see billions of dollars. Now, time that, a time that times that with 50 states. And let's say the average of 50 states is 20 prisons. You know, to take some from Michigan and take some from Cali and take some from Texas. Let's say, let's say, let's say 10. Let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Look how intricate this thing is, this system that's going, that's in place of what's now known as mass incarceration. I think Michelle Alexander in her book, The New Jim Crow, she gave a, a brilliant perspective of the new Jim Crow being mass incarceration because it's systematic. It started from the black codes, you know, the new, the new Jim Crow laws. And then once they shifted with the civil rights movement, when uh, segregation was over with through the Brown versus Board of Education, uh, the war on drugs started. So it was another form of control. And then you get the 13th Amendment added with it. You know, that's a play on morals and perspectives. But America is a corporation in and of itself, too. So now <laughs> we can get lost in what looks like the matrix and seeing it. But for somebody that's coming up and looking at it, they might not have that analysis because they don't understand the system and how the systems are intertwined with each other. When, when people don't have a, a, a good analysis, especially a scientific approach that really, you know, deals with the root opposed to the fruit, you know, just to say it simplistically, you know, metaphor is good to say certain things to get people to understand it. But when you, you need to understand the game in of itself, in of itself, in of itself, when you understand that, you will, you will approach it different. You will understand your SWAT, your strengths, weaknesses, and opportunities and threats. But because most people don't, and we just had this discussion in mass incarceration in America class where 
the professor asked me like, hey, you know, people just don't listen. They just don't care anymore. But I had to tell her this, because we live in a capitalistic society, most of the people are middle class, what you call proletarians. A lot of proletarians, they sell their labor. They sell their labor. Because they got to sell their labor, they alienate their time to think, to analyze, to investigate things. And because of that, more people than not would jump to conclusions of it's the Illuminati, it's a secret group, it's Zion Protocols of the Elders, it's God doing it. All these things that they can just come to uh, a lot of visceral and illogical things because people are not having the time to pay attention. We'll hear more from Leon in future episodes. But right now, you can find out more about Leon's case at freeleonbenson.org or write to him at the Pendleton Correctional Facility, number 995256. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can support our efforts and the prisoners we connect with through our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. You can follow us on all social media platforms by searching for KiteLine Radio or find us on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.